0: umbrellas Publish Conference is back to reunite the publishing industry. Returning for the first time since 2019, this one-day conference will be the biggest event in the print and digital publishing industry in Australia in 2022, providing professional growth and networking opportunities that will deliver great ideas and substantial learnings. Save $150 by purchasing an Early Bird ticket to join us on August 31st at the Amora Hotel, Jamison, Sydney. Buy your tickets at mumbrella.com.au slash publish.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Mumbrella cast. I'm Callum Jaspin. Today, are your radio listening habits changing post-COVID? You'll hear how the radio networks are performing so far in 2022. Then, with Woolies moving to Hogarth and further in-housing capabilities, is this a sign of the times or part of a decade-long trend? You'll hear from Trinity P3's Darren Woolley and later an interview with Seven's Natalie Harvey. On your panel today is Acting Deputy Editor Emma Shepherd. Welcome, Em. Hello. And Editor Andrew Banks. Hi, Callum. Hi, Emma. Hey. 2021 was a very well-documented year of talkback. Both 3AW and 2GB saw record numbers across the year with the ABC's local stations riding the lockdown wave as well. Now it appears there are early signs that listening habits are starting to potentially shift back to pre-COVID trends. It was a strong showing for Nova with the growth in each of the Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide and Perth markets while SCA's hit network channels, Two Day FM and Fox showed signs of life in the nation's two biggest radio markets the other channel on sca triple m is also showing signs of improvement after a few big talent changes over the summer break while nine radios 2gb does appear to be holding steady it wasn't a good survey as much comparatively for the sister stations 3aw4bc and 6pr all dropping share The ABC also saw declines across the board, however, with a federal election spanning Survey 3, I'm sure we'll see a rise there. Banksy starts us off. I listed a few things there, but one for me that continues to surprise me is the ongoing success of Christian O'Connell and Golden Melbourne. Classic hits and a radio legend from overseas. Seems like a straightforward recipe,
0: you'd think, no? Very interesting, yes. Um, Callum, I, I spoke to ARN's chief content officer Duncan Campbell, and he said it's a funny one. He's he's from England, he's got an accent, it, it shouldn't work on paper. He's pretty much agreed that he's done a really amazing job down in Melbourne. Um, I say down in Melbourne because we're up in Sydney, but um, yes, he's saying he's very talented, he's a stand up comic, and everything. So, I think with I think the quote he gave me was that he has an English charm to him that can be quite seductive, which I thought was interesting. Um, (laughs) You know, you want seductive people on the radio, that's great. Um, He said he's not arrogant, which helps, uh, and that he's very inclusive. So uh, I think all these things plus the fact that you've got music that resonates with people, that sort of link people back to events in their lives, you know, it's such a big uh, type of music. Um I think that's what's driving it down there in Melbourne.
1: And Em, as usual, you're on Sydney duties. Any big stories coming out there?
2: Yeah, so the key takeouts um in Sydney first survey two was definitely the A B C Radio Sydney dramatic collapse. And I really do think it's quite dramatic um in its audience share across all time slots. Um and I do you know, see that FM stations are kind of bouncing back, and you know, obviously that is because of the COVID restrictions easing. You know, more people back in cars, uh, more people listening to drive and breakfast. Uh, you know, saying that uh, it was Two GBs Ben Fordham who did take that breakfast slot win. He has ha- held this for quite a quite some time now. There was a slight decline in his audience share. Uh, but, you know, I think people are very much interested in what's happening, national events around, you know, Australia with the floods. And I think with the election coming up, uh, that's really helping him kind of stay up on top as well.
1: Yeah, I um I managed to have a quick chat with uh, Nine Radio's Greg Burns this morning. Um, you know, as mentioned there, Nine Radio, Barring Sydney, taking a little bit of a share hit alongside the ABC, although for Greg he doesn't he didn't seem too concerned um he kind of pointed to uh Q numbers being up year on year best survey for 9 radio overall i think uh, maybe we do sometimes get caught up in that share survey to survey although you know in Melbourne there has been a little bit of a decline over recent surveys he did point to 9 remaining to be ahead of its counterparts uh and with an election on the horizon he also i think like most we've spoken to for this um suspect that works at abc local radios and um the nine radio channels will see a bit of a boost he um i guess pushed back on the suggestion that coming out of covid may have uh in the long term changed listening habits and said that um during this period rather than it being a momentary thing people gave them a shot and and in three AW and two G B in particular's case liked what they heard and are sticking around.
0: On that Callum. Brendan Taylor, Nova's group program ops director, mentioned that there will be a shift back to AM. It's historically what happens during election time. They're not that too fussed about it. They're they're willing to sort of provide updates for people uh, in line with their audience and just be respectful of that and know they know that they can really get that back once the election is over.
1: Yeah, uh, Tim Burroughs made a few interesting points this morning, essentially attempting to reframe the way we look at these ratings. Fordham's breakfast show, for an example, one that he listed, by some distance the most Popular in Sydney, um, averaging about one hundred forty nine thousand listeners at any one point. Which you know, you look at the TV ratings, emmas will be, um, you'll be discussing with Nat Harvey later some of those kind of uh, intricacies. How it's it's a pretty big or stark difference to those numbers we see for TV. Banksy, how valuable is this audience really continuing to be for marketers?
0: Surprisingly valuable, actually, Callum. Uh, Steve Allen from PMM Media, I had a chat with him about this. He's actually along the lines of it being very cost-efficient uh, option for advertisers. He thinks it's quite a competitive space for advertisers to be in. I think he, he puts that down to frequent disruptions and short lead times and economic production involved in advertising gives – radio the edge over other formats. He He's quite uh, positive about that. And when I spoke with Brendan Taylor about that as well, he, he agreed that radio is still a relevant format, especially during times of COVID and lockdowns and election times as well. It just allows for a, a wide reach across the board. And while we don't have, I guess, a lot of times these commuter audiences as much. I mean, they are coming back post-COVID. Uh, I believe that radio is is a very vital source and, and that's, the, that's, I guess, across the board what people are saying.
1: Yeah, and uh, I think uh, just a final point to touch on it, you know, last year a big focus was put on SCA and a potential network. Um, poor performance maybe, you know, impacted in several ways by COVID. This time around... Uh, the network across um, Triple M and the HIT network were, were performed fairly well. Some good gains yeah, over the first two surveys. Um, you know, Triple M very well documented, had quite a few uh, lineup changes. Moonman uh, leaving in, I guess, cloudy circumstances from Triple M in Sydney. The Mick Malloy National Drive Show being replaced by uh, local programming uh, in particular, two Today FM breakfast team saw a little bump as well as the breakfast show in Melbourne, which is now um, not too far off the top FM breakfast show. I think that it kind of harps back to an interesting point Cameron made to me earlier in the year um, about the wider SCA strategy. And he kind of pointed to potentially – Highlighting the fact that radio ratings aren't the be all and end all anymore. Of course, it's uh, very easy to say this when you've not been getting the results you want, but now that um, the network maybe potentially is, um, it's pointing to what could be playing into maybe quite a good strategy for SCA. You know, they've kind of implemented um, similar to the other networks this sort of um, cross platform strategy. You've got shows introducing ones like the hot nights with uh abby chatfield and then uh, she's got her podcast which uh, in this month's podcast rankers was the seventh most popular podcast uh, in the country i have also gotten the top 30 the rush hour with jb and billy and also the Marty Shear Gold Show, so really kind of diversifying the content avenue streams there. When you compare it to something like Ben Fordham, you know we mentioned his numbers before, but his um, podcast is uh, at number fifty in the rankings, only eighty three thousand listeners a month. So just a few interesting points to look at there.
2: I just wanted to add on on that. It is much like TV ratings where we'd look at the FTTA linear. Um, uh, we also look at their you know, live streaming numbers and BVOD to give a total TV audience. And much like that figure, uh, audio is the same. So we kind of look at the JFK survey. Uh, we're not adding the, the, the live streaming either. So I think at some point where we really need to look at the bigger picture and combine live streaming audience share as well to make it Total Audio, much like we're doing at the moment with Total TV.
1: Coming up next, Trinity P3's Darren Woolley on Woolworth's production shift. Global CEO of Trinity P3 Marketing Management Consultants, Darren Woolley, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thank you very much, Callum.
1: So first up, Woolies have shifted its production to WPP's Hogarth, as it was hinted here on Mumbrella last week. The deal will see Hogarth handle production of omnichannel content across social, digital, print and audio content as the retailer has decoupled creative and production, leaving behind News Corpse suddenly. Darren, what does this mean exactly and why is it a big deal?
3: Well, look, this is a trend uh, column that's been happening for the past decade. You know, we saw it particularly in the US, and it's catching up here. And that is, as marketers find themselves having to produce greater volumes of content, they're looking for what they perceive as better solutions to that.
1: It's more than just a cost-cutting exercise. I, I believe it's about ten times more content brands are having to produce each month. Willie said it was to keep up with the insatiable appetite for content. Where, What is the appetite for content? And is it consumers that are after it?
3: Well, look, uh, it's actually social media and all of the uh, tech platforms. It's the Facebooks, the TikToks, the Instagrams, because we've trained our audience to go to those platforms to find something new. So the old days of making a TV ad and running it until everyone was bored, uh, it was gone. And, you know, there's a demand To keep attention by giving the customer, the consumer something new every day. You multiply that across the number of uh, uh, channels that marketers find themselves having to be in. And it's no wonder, you know, we've been tracking this since uh, 2004. Uh, Back then, the average brand would produce 200 to 250 pieces of work a year. We stopped counting at about two and a half, three thousand now, and that's on average. Some brands are producing tens of thousands of, piece of work, pieces of work every year. Doing that the old fashioned way, the very linear, sort of bespoke way, no longer cuts it. You've got to find a way to do it faster, cheaper, maintain quality, and meet those demands.
1: I mean, you kind of hinted to it there, but are, are budgets increasing with, uh, I guess, in line with the need for all this extra content?
3: Of course not. You know, budgets have been <laughs> pretty much static for the last 10 years as well. You know, this is why agencies have felt the pressure. You know, procurement's been bought in to uh, toe cut the agency to get them to do more for less because, you know, clients are finding themselves with so many extra things to do Uh, in in all these new channels, but no significant increase. And in some cases, we've seen a drop in marketing budgets in real terms because it's not keeping pace with even cost of living.
1: So you mentioned it's been, uh, I guess, an oncoming trend for quite some time. Could you dig a little bit deeper into that and what the, I guess, wider implications might be for the industry?
3: Well, look, yeah, uh, we started seeing this in the US, you know, the talk about in-housing. And and let's just unpack that a bit, you know, because people are talking about Hogarth and they deal with Woolies being an in-housing play. There's a true in-housing play where the client takes responsibility, recruits and and, and builds their in-house agency. And then there's this sort of implanted version, which you basically abdicate the responsibility for managing that to a third party, but they basically create an in-house agency on your behalf. And there's pluses and minuses for both of those. But If we lump that implanted model in as in-house agency, in the US, you know, it was five years ago, the ANA there did a survey and they were saying that around 80-something percent of clients had an in-house agency. What they really meant was that they had in-house capability to produce content. You know, uh, what was it, 10 years ago, content was king? Well, it's actually not king. It is the game, you know, and all of these digital channels... Uh, making it so that if you're not updating your content on a daily basis, then you're not in the game anymore.
1: So is that the next step then? Will we, you know, you say that they're saying that they're taking things in-house, but they just have in-house capabilities. Will we see a point where they are actually taking things in-house?
3: Not necessarily so. I mean, for some clients, there is a good reason to bring... Uh, capabilities in-house. And a lot of that is around security, particularly of first-party data. You know, there's always a concern that if you're sharing first-party data with a a, a supplier, that there's a, a risk of it being compromised. But for a lot of clients, I think this implanted model is a legitimate one from a financial perspective, because you don't have the responsibility of recruiting and, and retaining talent that sits with a third party. and the relative costs are very similar. you know there's a little if, if you truly cost out an in-house agency for the same quality of staff, it's not that different except for maybe the profit margin, which may only be 10%. So for all of the benefits, of implanting uh, a third party or an external supplier in-house. You get all the benefits without many of the downsides of it. (laughs) So I see that. But it's not, by the way, Callum, this is not for every client because it only really impacts those that have enough volume and therefore have the investment that it makes it worthwhile.
1: So... Creative houses shouldn't be uh, too worried just yet. The, uh, the, the early death is greatly exaggerated.
3: <laughs> well, there's certainly no death for creative <laughs> agencies, but I think they have to rethink their business model because, you know, in some ways if you equate the traditional advertising content creation model to a cottage industry where every piece is carefully handcrafted to the highest standard the volume and the speed demands much more the production line, which can still produce a high-end product, just much cheaper and faster than, uh, than the, the cottage industry. And it's more scalable. I mean, this is the thing is that, you know, when we get into things like personalization, if anyone can actually get that to work in a way that uh, has real uh, sales impact then you're going to see volumes increase because every single piece is going to be personalised to the the individual customer. And then we're going to see millions of pieces of work produced for every campaign.
1: Darren, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Uh, It's my pleasure as always. Thank you.
1: Coming up next, 7West Media's Network Sales Director, Natalie Harvey on the network strategy moving through the year and beyond. (music)
2: Joining us today is Seven West Media's National Sales Director, Natalie Harvey. Nat, welcome to the Mumbrella cast. It's so great to have you on today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, I'll have to apologize to you as we recorded this yesterday in our studio and we had a bit of an issue with the corrupted file, so I really appreciate you doing this for a second time. <laughs> Fingers crossed we get to reenact it, it, You know how good our chat was yesterday, so we'll do our best. It'll be um, even better. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, Now, the reason why I wanted to have a chat with you uh, for our podcast is basically uh, I saw your session last week at the Future of TV Advertising Summit uh, in Sydney, and it was seriously impressive with some really good things that you shared uh, to the room. Uh, And I really would love to be able to share with our audience some of the updates and uh, some of the impressive things that you had to say. So without mentioning any names, uh, and this was not part of your session, but comments were well-documented at the event about Nine intentionally making their online product shit, uh, pardon my French. Do you think that there has been delayed progress in creating a good BVOD product to keep consumers on linear platforms?
4: Uh, Well, I can't speak for Nine's strategy Uh, But certainly from a seven perspective, absolutely not. Um, We want to maximise our audiences on all platforms. So um, we want to make sure that there's a great experience on any seven platforms. So there is definitely no conspiracy to protect the linear uh, experience and audiences. That is, uh, from a seven perspective, you have to ask nine about their strategy, but I'd be very surprised if that was the strategy. I think we've got a lot of work to do as an industry around Um, how we make that experience better for our viewers. I think when you look at, you know, what's happening on uh, the media side, so, you know, we're working with Magnite on unified decisioning, um, but there is more to do across the board. This is not just a media owner problem.
2: And you also revealed some exciting news at the summit that Seven will soon launch Converge Ed. Can you expand a bit more about what that means for customers and media?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So we've been pretty hot on changing the narrative around total content audiences and making sure that we're looking at the the real size of an audience and a piece of content, how it performs um, across the country and across platforms. And it's been a little bit of a surprise how difficult it is to get momentum around evolved trading models and how do we, um, I guess, get media buyers and clients to look at a more converged way of working. And one of the big areas that we've had feedback on is education. So there's so much information out there. And so what we're doing with Converge Ed is trying to decipher a lot of the data because you could spend years just working through all the data points and developing different insights and different ways of working and different hypotheses and scenarios. So what we're doing is creating a series of mini pieces of content that media agencies and clients can go in and just get I guess the first taste of what a converged audience looks like, how you buy it, how you would optimize, how you report on it, um, all with the objective to try and get people to take that first step to a new way of working. Get release ourselves from the shackles of traditional ways of working and legacy metrics that, you know, I think there's there's certainly malice clauses out there around TV CPMs and Um, you know, auditing that is based on, you know, a very traditional siloed way of buying a audience um, that is now fragmenting and fragment, fragmentation is a gift. It's not a, it's not a um, hindrance. It gives us a really good opportunity to talk to still masses of audiences and be able to connect in with them differently on connected TV or mobile devices, as well as have the large scale reach of television and traditional linear television. So the intent of that Education series is just, just to get people a little bit more excited about what's coming and take the first step because it has been pretty difficult to date. That sounds really, really exciting. And when will this
2: be released? Ooh, when was very, soon.
4: very soon. Um, so we're currently in, uh, I guess, if it we're treating it like a TV show, we're in production um, phase of that. So they'll be released um, very soon. Can't wait to see it. Um, Now, if we go back to
2: talk about Seven as a network, coming off the ratings win for Seven last year, obviously in in terms of TV, I wondered what Seven had in place to kind of take the win back again for 2022 uh, and more broadly, what kind of strategies uh, does the network have to ensure future growth and longevity uh, and anything that you've particularly invested in for 2022 and coming into 2023?
4: Yeah, so if you look back at last year, it was a great year. It's great to be back at number one. Um our biggest weakness was probably Q1. Didn't perform as well as what we'd hoped it would. And you'll see through the numbers um, for year to date that we've rectified some of that. So there's been, you know, significant share growth and um audience growth in demos. I think, you know, on under 50s. 1639s, and 2554 we've had the most significant share growth of any network, so we're pretty proud of that. So the strategy around making sure we beef up Q1 has delivered. Um, for the rest of the year you'll see some favourites in there like The Voice launching on Monday and then you've got Big Brother, This Farmer Wants a Wife. Uh, My Kitchen Rules is back, uh, and then we've got uh, there's AGT in there. Of course, the Commonwealth Games, which is a huge event and the most time-friendly format that we've had or program that we've had for an overseas game. So there's some good, really good Tier 1 sports that will be sitting at like 7.30 at night, which is awesome. Um, So the strategy is to invest in what works, to invest in um, news and sport that is live, must-watch, to invest in seven plus and make sure that we've got a solid content library there that is more than just a catch-up service. There's only only around 30% of viewing is done on the the content that's on the linear broadcast. The rest is all of library content. Um, And you'll see that that audience will grow too with marketing into regional. So, you know, got to make sure we've got that really strong content spine. You know, sometimes we get feedback around um, in the past, certainly not this year, uh, around a tent pole in a quarter. The fact is we have a tent pole every night of the week with the news, Home and Away is on four nights a week, but sometimes that gets forgotten about and people go after the big shiny thing that might be on, you know, two or three nights a week. Um, but there's not, as far as I'm aware, there's not any advertisers that only buy two hours a week. That's not that's not a, um, a buying strategy. So you've got to cover all bases from, you know, sunrise through to the latest. Um, every hour of the day needs to be strong. And on... The topic of Home and Away, you did actually use that as an
2: example last Thursday at the uh, summit uh, and it was, you, kind of, you showed a slide that kind of looked at the segmentation of where the audience sits in terms of linear, BVOD, uh, seven-day consolidated, etc. Um, could you just talk a little bit more about that and where you see um, the biggest trends in terms of the audience for a show like Home and Away?
4: Yeah, so I think if you look at over the past few years, the percentage of audience that is reached exclusively through seven plus increases. Um, you know, as new homes are built, I've heard my my old mate James Bays talk about, um, you know, houses are now built without antennas on them. Um, so out of a, a necessity, people are watching on a connected TV. It's funny because My house, I got a new house last year and my antenna didn't work, so I got a new one because I wanted to watch the linear broadcast and the antenna man said that he's having a booming year. So there (laughs) are still people who want the antenna. Um, So you do see that that percentage of audience uh, watching exclusively through 7 Plus has increased. Uh, We still get a massive um, bulk reach on the linear broadcast across Metro and Regional. But the reason why I showed that slide was because I think a lot of the time and because of our own... uh, we have, as an industry, we've been talking for a very long time about Metro Overnights as a measure of success, and that is the lowest possible number that we could use about the performance of a piece of content because the build that I showed looked at the plus seven days, looked at the regional audience, and looked at the bebot audience. Now, media, and it went from 599,000 to 1.12 million on an average home and away episode, which that's huge. And I had people coming up to me after go, yeah, no, I just went straight to the Metro overnight. So I'm like, yeah, no, that's what we're trying to change the narrative. It's we've got to change it and get people looking at that overall number. Now, importantly, media buyers don't buy media like that. If you're Coles and you're in MKR and you've got that piece of integration that goes across all that audience, amazing, happy days. It's great. We can get even more rigor around that piece of integration and how many people would have seen it. Now, from a buyer perspective, it's up to us to make it really easy for buyers to be able to get that large-scale reach across metro, regional, and digital. We've launched a new product called 7Connect. We have our first one going live pretty soon, uh, which is uh, one spot that goes across all metro markets at the same time. So you've got that mass reach, immediate reach. So using the platform for what it's best for. But then also on the flip side of that, when I spoke about tacos, I think, you know, I think most people went out that night and bought tacos, so you're welcome, old El Paso. Um, and I think that um, the, the the reason why I showed that example is because everyone understands, the little girl, why can't we have both? And you have the large-scale linear reach that we get with traditional linear television, but then with BVOD, you do get the reach extension and then through CTV and mobile devices as well and desktop You can get more targeted, so there's more addressability, and then new innovative ad formats to enable a two-way connection between a viewer and a brand, which is only going to benefit that brand, because if you've got higher engagement, you've got the ability to click through and purchase. You know, we're very hot on e-commerce, as the rest of the industry is as well. Um, And to find out more information, I had a case study in there about SAS and Land Rover Defender, um, and the large number of um, click throughs we had using the old school q r code, which has clearly made a resurgence, um, so I think it's the home and away example is just really easy for people to understand because even after that, Justin said, "Oh yeah, home and away is still there because it gets forgotten about and it shouldn 't because it is a powerhouse in terms of audience. We should be proud of our Australian dramas that we 're creating as well, um, and it 's really consistent
1: mm.
2: and where on on that note where you know, where do you see, uh, you know, a buying pattern within Seven's network? Are buyers leaning towards more of a kind of hybrid buying? Obviously, we were talking about linear and BVOD and you say that you kind of have to have a bit of both. Um, Do you still think that it's very much a media buyer is kind of looking at those free-to-air linear first and then, you know, chucking a little bit more money later down the track in BVOD or are you finding that in the very beginning they're throwing a certain percentage in linear, how how are you, how does that look?
4: Well, it's kind of, it's a little bit different. So if we look at like a sponsorship of a show, um, a, an advertiser or a media buyer will buy across broadcast and digital. Uh, regional is a little bit neglected, if I'm honest, and that's a, an opportunity for us to help, I guess, prove the power of regional audience and the importance of extending into regional. Um, so for sponsorships, you do find that that happens at the same time the the television, linear television and digital buys done together. But when it comes to a generic spots and dots buy, um, it is still treated very separately. Um, and that's why you know part of the education process is us is is to help brands be able to move as fluidly through our ecosystem as our audiences do. So stop being so program focused, so platform focused. So going TV, digital and within digital, mobile, desktop, CTV, um, and going more around, well, how do I follow an audience and get a better result? Because at the end of the day, the audiences are the ones who are going to buy a product. So it should be audience first buying, not platform first. And as I said earlier, I think that part of the biggest challenge is legacy metrics, legacy KPIs, uh, very outdated in my from my perspective. Um, you know, I like to use a toilet paper analogy. Um, you know, everyone stands there in a in a row at the grocery store, and you've got multiple types of toilet paper, and they all cost something different. They essentially do the same thing, but they're all different prices. So think about that from a CPM perspective. Again, like the tacos, really easy for people to understand that analogy. Why do you go for the Quilton three ply rather than you know something else that might be a little bit cheaper? So I guess we've got a really big um, transition to do as an industry. And as I said before, it's about taking that first step and what we're doing around convergence at Seven is trying to get agencies and clients to buy in at zero risk. Like we're putting a lot of skin in the game on this because we need to co-create the future together. We can't do it for us by ourselves. We can't just package up here's a new way of working. Would you like to do this? It's how do we do it together? Um so we're we're leaning in really hard and we're looking for progressive agencies and clients that want to lean into um and what a great opportunity for for us in the industry to go we are genuinely creating the future of the industry and in 10 years time we can look back and go wow we did that we were part of that so we've got to get ourselves out of the it's always been done like this and some of the legacy ways of thinking because um we'll all be struggling in 10 years if that's the case definitely
2: and you know how have media buyers changed the way that they buy on TV? Has COVID-19 affected at all how media buyers spend their money and, and where are they kind of shifting their focus to post-pandemic?
4: Oh, 100%. It's changed. So um, when COVID first hit, gosh, I called it Armour Media again. <laughs> get it? Yeah, you That's get a it. a good one. Um, <laughs> uh, but... Like that was, you know, there's a lot of chopping and changing. You know, we needed to respond quickly. Retailers were open and closing, open and closing. Melbourne in particular, a lot of challenges. Um, so we've moved from being really agile to needing to be um, planning much further out and a couple of reasons for that. One, our production timelines have been moved a lot further ahead uh, from uh, to give ourselves some COVID, uh, I guess, buffers around the disruptions to programming and production. But then on as well as um, the requirement for longer lead times for production, the other part of that is I think agencies and clients fell back in love with telly and saw that the benefit that television and big um, local brand-safe content and how powerful that can be for a brand to be able to get mass reach but then also to make sure that they're winning when it comes to share of voice um, and share of wallet so we've seen a pretty significant increase in the ad market for television. So buyers have to be planning much further out and buying much further out to be able to access the airtime that they want, um, because you need that quality airtime to be able to reach the audience you want, um, to hit your reach goals, to hit your traditional media metrics, but also you buy media to sell products, right? And if you're not going to buy TV the way it's supposed to be, that's going to have an impact on you know, cash register sales. So... Um, it's much, much longer term lead time than what it was pre-COVID. We kind of got back into a kind um, of you know four six week lead time for a lot of clients, and it's certainly it's more than double that now. Wow! Wow!
2: In January, seven joined forces with audience measurement company Amplified Intelligence to launch a research project examining consumer attention with TV and BVOD content. If I remember correctly, this is part of seven strategic enhanced advisor and viewer experience called EVE, which is an, an initiative that you have. How has this changed the way brands and consumers connect?
4: Well, it hasn't changed yet. Um, attention is certainly the buzzword of 2022, isn't it? If you had that on your bingo card, you'd be doing well. Um, the reason why we're looking at attention is, If I take it back, you asked me earlier about being number one and having that mass reach, and mass reach is super important because we can reach more car buyers, more dog food buyers, et cetera. And then it's how do we, A, find those audiences, so using 7 Red IQ from a 7 Plus, uh, looking through 7 Plus, um, and the audiences in 7 Plus and being able to understand where those audiences are with other data partners that we have on board as well and use that to inform buying decisions across broadcast and digital. And then it's the reason why we're doing the attention study is to look at where are those opportunities for brands to be able to cut through even stronger. So Eve Eve was created to enable us to find opportunities for advertisers to have a much higher engaged audience watching at that time. So their brand cuts through to give them a competitive edge when it comes to share a voice and to help with smarter buying decisions. So we haven't had our full report yet, but we've had a few insights, which I'm happy to share with you. Um, the AFLW really strong for passive and um, uh, active attention, really strong. And that's those short breaks that we call um, after a goal scored, the most powerful real estate in media. Um, the audiences are trained to know that after a goal scored, there'll be an, you know one ad, maybe two, and then straight back into the content. So attention is really high. We also saw SAS Australia was the highest out of the content that we were um, that was part of the study. Uh, the Voice Generations did really well as well. Um, but then, interestingly, we saw some of the feedback has been around durations and a little bit of inconsistency around um, duration attention. And you know, the longer you go, there might be less people um, engaged. So it's you got to be careful that you don't try and commoditize attention because like my CPM um, conversation and, you know, the toilet paper example, it's not all the same. And when you look at creative context, spoke about this at the Future of TV as well, that the longer the ad doesn't mean that you're going to have less attention. Because if we, we look back at what Qantas did with that three-minute beautiful ad, the, the creative plays such a big role in attention as well. So the research that we're getting is only one part of a bigger proposition around how we deliver a better experience for advertisers and deliver better effectiveness. That was a really long answer to your question, by the way.
2: No, (laughs) really, really interesting. And on the back of that, um, obviously, we have VOS as well, virtual OZ data. What insights are you seeing with audience behaviours around
4: VOS? Yeah, so uh, with the VOS data, one of the fortunate um, silver linings, I guess you could say, we've got to find those silver linings over the last couple of years. With the Tokyo Olympics being postponed a year, um, the Voz data was available. So we mined the Tokyo audiences uh, because what we saw was essentially a census level event for TV viewing um, with you know our most populated cities in Sydney, Melbourne, and, and half of the games we saw, Brisbane was um, in, isolation, in uh, lockdown as well. Uh, so we saw as many people as possible essentially watching tv so where are they choosing to watch television on what sort of device and the voz data enabled us to de audiences and we saw that even with 20 million people watching on the linear broadcast we're still able to deliver significant incremental reach through seven plus exclusively um, and particularly with young audiences like you know over 20 percent on 18 to 24s which that's a that's a big number um, they're really hard to find in like on a big screen as well as in such premium high engaging content so we've been we use it for that and we use it for um we track it every day but in terms of from a sales perspective and where we're looking for insights this the next part of that is around sponsorships so when a client's sponsoring say for example the voice, how can we deliver a better campaign? by market and by platform using the VOS data. And that's why we created our dashboard that we share with our sponsors. Um, Now, the next phase is that our head of Converged Audience Trading, Alex Tansley, we call him the HOCAT, head of Converged Audience Trading. Um, The next phase we're looking at is around general buying. So what is the optimal split to BVOD um, of a total television um, campaign? And the insights have been amazing, actually. Like we see some clients are under-indexed on BVOD Spend. Some are bang on. Some might be even over-indexed. Um, so we, that will some of that insight will be part of the Converge Ed um, content series as well. We'll be sharing some of the work that we've been doing and unpicking the VOS data and trying to find you know, insights that will give media buyers a competitive edge. And I genuinely think those who get the model right around convergence using the VOS data, Using things like Seven Red IQ and you know other data points, there's going to be clients will move because if someone has a more advanced buying system and way of um, a buying strategy around total videos, total video, and can manage inflation. You know, some of the work we've seen is that if you move X percent of your budget to digital, you're you're actually talking deflation, which in this current market, um, that's not the conversation we're having. So I genuinely think that there will be. Clients won and lost on you know the the evolved trading models. Absolutely. Looking at the ratings year and who wins and who
2: doesn't. You know, nine came out last year and said that it's you know they they were also winners, but in the key their key advertising demo twenty five to fifty four. What does this all mean? And what do you think? What is what's the issue between this the the two you know seven and nine and you know, the kind of the butting of the heads of who wins and who doesn't.
4: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, from a measurement perspective, think about any other category, right? And if you sell more of something, so if you sell more cars, sold the most amount of cars, Toyota's biggest automotive brand in the country, they are the biggest automotive business and they are number one. I haven't seen any VFax data um, or any other data that suggests that the winner is somebody who gets more under 50s um, buying cars or 1639s. So number one is incredibly important because not only does it give us that large scale reach, but it does give us more car buyers. It gives us more dog food buyers. It gives us more yogurt purchases um, because of that, I guess, the scale that we've got. And if we can help find those audiences, the, better, the, the sooner we move away from age as a, a proxy for media buying, the better, um, because I'm pretty sure that especially I use automotive because, again, it's really easy to understand. Um, if a 55-year-old walked into a car dealer and wanted to buy a car, the salesperson isn't going to ignore them. They've got a lot of money, you know, particularly versus an 18-year-old or even a 25-year-old, a salesperson is going to go straight to the person with the most amount of money um, to be able to purchase that car. So the, the sooner we can move away from demos, the, the better. Um, I'm not going to ignore the fact that, you know, most of our negotiations are done on a demographic um, analysis. So it is important to win the demos as well. Don't disagree with that. Um, but as you've seen this year, we have had significant uh, growth in the demos, um, but you've got to get the balance right because while you're talking to a more targeted audience, you've also got to keep yourself broad and, and use the benefit of what could be an older audience because, they're still going to buy your products too. So 7 is the biggest. We do have the most people watching. So on any other metric in the business world, 7 is the winner.
2: I'll have to get Steve on for next week and see what he has to say. We'll
4: talk about demos.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to say thank you so much, Nat, for joining us on the Mombrella Cast. I can't wait to see what's in store for the rest of 2022 on 7.
4: I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me and uh, have a happy and safe Easter. You too. Thank you.
1: That's it for another week on the Mumbrella Cast. Please make sure to subscribe on the platform you listen on and check the website for more content and updates. Thanks, and m Thank you for joining me. Thank
2: you.
0: Thanks, Kel. Hope you feel better soon.
1: And we'll be back next week.